Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. I'll be your host today, Joshua, and we have a special guest like we always do, and I'm really excited to talk to her today. So today on the show, we have Fiona Tinwai Lam, who has authored three poetry collections and a children's book called The Rainbow Rocket, which I'm really excited to talk about today. She has produced several award-winning poetry videos that have screened at festivals all over the world, besides editing the anthology The Bright Well, Contemporary Canadian Poems on Facing Cancer. She has co-edited two nonfiction anthologies. She has also been shortlisted for the City of Vancouver Book Award and thrice selected for BC's Poetry in Transit. Her work appears in over 40 anthologies, including the Best Canadian Poetry Series. A former lawyer, she has a MFA in creative writing from UBC. She currently teaches at SFU's Continuing Studies and has been appointed Vancouver's Poet Laureate for the 2022 to 2024 season, um, in which basically in that role, she serves as a champion for poetry, language, and the arts. And you can find more about her at FionaLam.net. So Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So I actually was gifted your book because someone had found it and and read it and saw that there's a, a big section on dreams within the rainbow rocket and i was really excited to hear that and that's why so i reached out and i'm really happy you're here so we can talk about your journey through grief and really why you wrote this book and how it represents maybe your own life absolutely i'm so pleased to be on this show joshua um and that you found this book it was meant to be (laughs) um so i have lived in canada since i was four years old came over with my family from the uk And my father and mother were both doctors. My dad, though, got uh, liver cancer and he passed away when he was only 42 years old and I was 11 years old. And my brother and sister were three and eight years old. So I was the eldest daughter and helping out my mom where I could. And it was a really hard time. It was a shocker for all of us because he passed very, very quickly from basically three months of diagnosis, we had to just keep functioning. So there wasn't a whole lot of time for grief when I was growing up. I mean, we certainly felt it. And my mother certainly um, experienced it and was quite depressed and unhappy for years to come. The last time we saw my dad was just before Christmas from the hospital. So every Christmas was a very sad time because we'd all remember the last time we saw my dad. But it wasn't until I'd say I was in my late 20s that I 
realized I had all this sublimated grief. I hadn't talked to anybody. I hadn't talked to even my mother or my siblings about it. And I went to a poetry retreat with a number of wonderful poets, including Olga Bruma, who is a, a Greek-American poet. And they did these, I know it might be considered kind of woo-woo and weird and so forth, but they did Reiki sessions, you know, energy healing and so forth, uh, as well as reading poetry and writing poetry, uh, thinking about poetry. And uh, everyone had a turn to sit in the middle and have hands laid on them and that happened to me. It was my turn. It was very, very powerful because first I started sort of giggling because I thought this is really silly. I could imagine this being parodied on Saturday Night Live or something is this strange, flaky, uh, hippie type ritual. But then after I started giggling and, and guffawing, um, as it happens in, in some acting classes and so forth, you realize under that kind of veneer of making fun of yourself, uh, there's this other deeper feeling and I started to to cry and I thought wow and I just let it happen you know I was crying and crying and sobbing and pretty snotty and you know real mess and I realized after the session that there was something pretty deep going on inside a very deep repressed grief and after that session I had a a a nap or an evening little doze or something. And it was an incredible experience because for the very first time, I could see my dad and and he was not sick. He was just walking, looking pretty healthy. And it was amazing because after his passing, I had not been able to envision my dad at all. I was 11 years old. So there was this vacuum. It's like I'd look at his pictures and I just couldn't remember who he was. It's as if the time in the hospital had sort of wiped out everything and the sadness had wiped out everything. And so seeing my dad looking healthy and vibrant and happy uh, was really deeply comforting to me because it reminded me that there was a connection still there. It wasn't this sort of terrible, dark, abyss of nothingness there was a presence there that i could connect to and and visualize so that stayed with me and was very comforting so other times i could sort of remember that image that i had if i was meditating if i was just sort of sitting quietly and uh, if i was scared uh, when I was giving birth, I was a bit scared because things were going a bit sideways. So I really concentrated on visualizing my dad <clears throat> as if he were there. And it, it helped really totally calm my nervous system and make me feel uh, less alone. So when my mother passed away, she had had over 10 years of, of dementia, early onset dementia. And I had tried so hard for my toddler son to get to know uh, his grandmother, the only grandparent he had. And really, she was pretty far gone and she couldn't really talk to him. Um, she sort of understood that he was there and they had a little bit of an overlap where they could interact with the piano or a little bit of walking, but not really talk to each other, converse or, or whatever. So when she passed away, I was with her in the hospital and my sister was there, but my son wasn't there. He was about five years old and it was in the middle of the night and I didn't know 
whether to bring him, wake him up or not. And I didn't. And he was really, really mad and upset that he didn't come to the hospital. I thought it would freak him out and scare him and, and it would be too much for him. But he felt he wanted to be there and he was pretty unhappy for a long time. Even though they hadn't been able to converse or interact on a daily basis at all, it was pretty infrequent. We'd done a lot to try to have them interact and create a bond. And I guess the bond had formed and he really felt the loss of that. So I was feeling really guilty and remorseful about that for a long time. So ultimately, I decided to write a kid's book, The Rainbow Rocket. And I had a first draft of it. And the day I wrote the first draft, I went to a coffee shop and to get away from my desk and have my coffee and, and write. The day I wrote that story, he came home with a rocket with rainbow colors on it. And yeah, I I thought, wow, what happened here? Because I hadn't talked about rainbow rockets. I hadn't even thought about rainbow rockets at all until I wrote the story. And I hadn't talked to him on the phone or in any other way. So I thought, okay, I better keep working on the story and make it a really good story. So um, it was a pretty long story with too many elements in it. So I had to simplify it and talk to an editor and talk to different publishers. And ultimately, what was honed down in the process of editing and revising was this dream. Now, my son, as far as I know, did not have this dream. And the characters in the story are based on real life, but fictionalized. I made the kid in the story a lot older. I made the grandmother in the story a little bit younger. I made it so that there was more time for the, the kid and the grandmother to interact with each other so that there'd be more of a visible bond for the story purposes and the illustrations. And in the story, there's the grandmother who loves to make art and she does art, makes art, with her grandson together on Sunday afternoons and they paint together and draw together and so forth. But through the process of the pages and the story, her cognitive decline becomes more evident in terms of her verbal ability, in terms of her ability uh, with motor function to hold a brush, her memory and so forth. It travels through into her moving into a, a care home. Uh, it moves into her being in the hospital and then passing away. But before she passes away, the young protagonist has a dream about his grandmother being vibrant and alive. He takes a spaceship, a rainbow rocket that he's actually drawn because they've seen a rainbow together, which is a very special memory for them. And she's helped him draw rockets that he was struggling and very frustrated about drawing. So with this rainbow rocket, he flies out to this other realm where there are these beautiful, huge flowers and, and everything that his grandmother paints becomes alive. She paints him a horse and the horse becomes alive and she, he rides the horse and she um, paints a, a bowl of peaches and they have peaches and a picnic. So it's a very comforting dream where he can feel like he's not lost his grandmother, that she's there for him. And she's got these magical powers through art. It shows that art has a very powerful uh, and, and vivid impact. So when he wakes up, he, he feels better. But around that time, the grandmother passes away and he feels very sad. So he's frustrated about how to deal with his grief. 
So ultimately, when they're talking about this special ritual in Chinese culture, where you visit the graves of your ancestors every year on April 5th in the springtime, and you visit the graves, you brush the graves, sweep them clean, and you burn paper things like paper clothes or paper cars or uh, effigies of some sort to help your paper money as well to help your ancestor. Uh, sometimes there's actual food and incense uh, laid out as well, flowers, of course. And there's a ritual where you bow and you, you're with other family members. You talk about your, your deceased family member. So it's actually a very happy time. It's not a, a time of, of grieving so much as celebrating that ancestor. So he decides that he will bring a special drawing for that ritual day. He draws a rainbow rocket. He puts in some peaches and they burn that at the grave. and. That's the end of the story. And it shows that even though, of course, the paper rocket is not a real rocket, it is still traveling to some other place, spiritually, mentally, intellectually. And actually, it is spreading out somewhere, somewhere else. And that there's a special ritual that he, that will continue for the rest of his life every year that they go to the cemetery or even imagine going to the cemetery. So the dream, I realize, is a dream that occurs before death. And Joshua, you've told me that many of these dreams come after death. And in my case, my dream came after my dad's death, a long time after my dad's death, uh, more than 15, 18 years after. But in the case of the story, uh, I didn't want 18 years to pass for uh, the kid's book. I wanted the comfort to come before the death and to create the circumstances that he could heal himself through ritual and through art by the end of the book. That's beautiful. I have so many, so many different things to sort of comment on and say. The first was I was really interested in that ritual day because the first time I've I've heard about that. And in the book it was called the uh, Ching Ming Day. That's that, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so I what I, I love about it is that it's a day where everyone who's bereaved can come and you'll see the I guess the cemetery or wherever, sort of packed with people to, I think, really normalize the, the death that people have experienced. Yes. Because now, like for me, if I go to my father's grave, I'm the only one I can really see there and you kind of feel alone. But to be able to go to it on a certain day to see everyone, you just don't feel so alone. So there's that aspect of it that I really, really like. And I really think it's really helpful for people to have a day to remember those that we have lost. I know in other cultures, they have that. Yes. Yes. Italians have a, um, a grave sweeping day uh, throughout Asia, actually, in Korea, Taiwan, uh, Singapore. Uh, I, I believe that there are a number of other cultures that do something similar, Jewish cultures. And they these rituals, these structures, these patterns really provide a place where missing someone loss can be noticed and discussed and yes absolutely not feel alone that's why in the book the last illustration is of springtime i mean april 5th is not springtime for other parts of the world but it is uh, in the pacific northwest and so i have the cherry trees in bloom i have people out there and it makes it feel like a, a picnic and it really is. People are bringing chicken and they're bringing um, oranges and uh, wine and all kinds of things. And, and they actually might sit and, and actually eat there. So it does feel like a little bit of a party, actually. And people all have their stories of um, their relative 
And they might be some sad stories, but there might be some other, you know, funny stories and and happy stories as well. And to not be alone is is huge, really, really huge. Because when we feel alone with our grief, we feel unsupported sometimes. We feel like no one else understands. And an actual fact, of course, everyone is going to experience a death in their life. Death of a beloved animal, a beloved family member, a friend. It's just part of life. No, that's so true. I kind of wish like that, like North America had something like that. For whatever reason, they don't. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, well, we have Remembrance Day or, you know, Veterans Day in the States. And, and that's a great time to rem- memorialize all those fallen soldiers and other people who were involved in fighting wars um, for freedom. But uh, I think there should be a Remembrance Day. And But thing is, we can create it ourselves. You can create it for that person's birthday or Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever festive day was that you celebrated with that person uh, that was special to you, Valentine's Day, Easter, Passover, whatever. And, and, and you can go there on that day and remember that you celebrated with that person and have a memento of some sort or a song, um, bring a few other people. And, uh, you know, we can do that, which is, is fantastic. And I wanted to use art in the book because I think any kind of art, whether it's song or dance or visual art or poetry, anyone can do that. We could all write a haiku or uh, a limerick even or short poem, bring it to the grave or say there isn't a grave. Say you live really far away from where your loved one is buried. You could set up a little shrine of sorts or a little space with some pictures or a little corner of your bookshelf and so forth. And, you know, on that day, you could gather some friends, have a meal, you know, even tea and cookies and, you know, sing that song, read that poem. I mean, people have Robbie Burns Day to celebrate, you know, this great Scottish poet from the 1700s. They can certainly do that for somebody who is more recently passed and so we can we can create things and we can put the date in the calendar. There could even, if it's a really recent passage, maybe there's a time of day or a certain day of the week. Or maybe we could, if it's not a, you're not a time-centered person, maybe there's a special drawing or a collage you could make and you could frame it and put it on your walls so that you could look at it uh, every so often. So we're really innovative beings. And very creative beings. Every single person is a creative being. And whether it's through food or writing or building, um, anything, we can make it happen. And if, say, you're really good at carpentry or carving or good at clay, I mean, there could be a special cup that you make, right? Uh, or a, a rock that you paint or a chair that you make or a box that you put, you know, your little thoughts in and, and you put them inside the box. So we can make our own meaning and we can make our own connection. That's beautiful. I, I love that. And you said you wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so now I have this book on the shelf. And of course, uh, in a couple of days, uh, it's going to be April. And then we'll be going over to the cemetery. And uh, it's not a very long thing. It's maybe 15 minutes that we're there. But it's a touchstone. That's right. Uh, that's what I love about it. It's like everyone remembers in those moments. And so like if there is emotion that comes out or just memories and it's just keeping that the family structure and keeping those memories alive, which I love. It's one of those things I don't like for looking at my own 
grief. It's not like I have that those times with my siblings to talk about my dad. Like, oh, come up. I think about my dad, but it's not like I'm talking to people about him or having some type of ritual you know, that we we do together, which, you know, I kind of wish we did now, you know, like, <laughs> like when you think about it, like, wow, that'd be like so much more meaningful. I'm curious. I know you said your son never had that type of dream. Have you ever asked your son if he had a dream of your mom? That's a really good idea. I should ask him. No, I haven't. I haven't. He's oh. super private and he, he feels a little uncomfortable when I write about him or anything based on him. So it's sort of one of those things where we, I wait for him to mention it. I will ask him, though, because I'm going to see him on Saturday, and he's now 21, and, and uh, explore that. He you could always, yeah. I was going to say, you could always preface it saying, I'm not going to write about it. I just want yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. I better preface it that way. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to be material, and I absolutely understand that. Um, but when your experiences are intertwined that way, it can be hard for, for writers, particularly. But I'm really grateful that the book got published and is out there and is in libraries and in places that probably it, the book has probably traveled more than I have. And especially for libraries. So that way anybody can access the book. The publisher went out of business a couple of years ago. So there are only a handful of books left. So I've been guarding them very carefully to just give to people who uh, are friends who are going through this situation. But when the book is gone, it's still going to be there in the libraries. And that's great. And I handed out a bunch of free ones through the Alzheimer's Society of uh, Canada and Alzheimer's Society of BC too. So they're, they're out there. Where did you find, where did your friend find the book? I forget. I work at the uh, the BC Center for Palliative Care, so oh. she must uh, got it somewhere in in a conference or something, or someone passed it to her. But yeah, she found it, and it's just amazing. And, I, and it's too bad the publisher went out of business because it's a great book. I really enjoyed it, and you sort of see some of the, I guess, challenges that not only children would have, but also you yourself would have had because your mom had dementia. And I wonder yeah. if you could speak a little bit about that because I'm not familiar. I never went through that type of journey with my father. So I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. Well, it happens a little bit differently for different people. Um, you never know exactly what kind of dementia it is until maybe someone were to analyze the brain after death. But uh, with early onset, it can happen in your 50s or even your 40s. In my mom's case, it started, the signs were there in her, I'd say, early 60s, late 50s. And usually, uh, it would happen more in your um, 70s or late 60s. So she seemed to function really well. And I think she kind of hit it for a long time. It starts with some forgetfulness. And of course, you know, names and, and phone numbers, um, losing um, your sense of where you are in space. So getting lost when you're driving or walking. My mom didn't get lost when she was walking or driving. It was more she didn't know names, but she could cover up for not knowing people. And she would repeat conversations. So there would be a loop in the conversation. She'd ask the same questions over and over again. And for people who weren't patient or understanding, they would get pretty frustrated, right? Like, why is she asking? Just, I just told you that. But really, uh, she was having a cordial conversation. And what's wrong with repeating the answers to the same questions if you're having a good time? And everyone's calm and, and uh, enjoying themselves. So there was that. And then she started to lose her English words. 
and words start started not making sense. And she didn't get to the point of losing uh, her ability to eat and swallow because those autonomic systems start to fail too, where people stop being able to actually uh, control bodily functions or swallow. And that's pretty bad. So you see this terrible deterioration over time. Sometimes it goes faster and sometimes it goes excruciatingly slowly. So it's a, a loss of um, neural function, essentially, that's over time. With Parkinson's and others, uh, other types of degenerative diseases, it's physical as well as possibly uh, intellectual and mental. I really don't know what's worse. I mean, it's all bad, actually. And it's horrible to see someone's decline. And what's really difficult is when the person, him or herself, experiences the, the decline and knows that they're declining and can't. It's like sliding down a hill and you know you there's no grip, right? And you're going down and down and down. It's terrifying and angering and frustrating. And, and, and you can imagine the despair. But there's a certain point when the person no longer has the, the self-awareness to know that they are falling down into that state and that's almost a more calm and peaceful time where they don't they don't know what they've lost and then the real loss is for all the people around them who may not be recognized as a family member or friend and that is really hard i always felt my mom kind of knew that there was a bond even though she couldn't speak she had a a fall and a stroke or maybe it was a stroke and a fall we will never know which order it came in so she was nonverbal in her time in palliative care uh, at two weeks at VGH, Vancouver General Hospital. But uh, we felt that she knew that we were there. And in terms of art, the other thing that really helped us was music, because she was very, very musical, as well as artistic. So we could bring a guitar or a keyboard, and we could sing. And we actually even celebrated uh, Chinese New Year. We brought a bunch of takeout. and you know, a guitar and, and sang a few songs. So I don't know, I'm not a campfire uh, Girl Scout person, so I only know a few songs. But, you know, You Are My Sunshine and, you know, Kumbaya and that kind of thing. She, uh, I think she got something out of it, maybe, but we certainly got something out of doing that. And on her birthday, you know, I, I, I do think about her. Her birthday is also coming up fairly soon. And Sometimes I wish we would remember to do this more often. It would be nice to do a toast to both my mom and to my my dad at some of these family gatherings, because that would be like a doorway into remembering, even a sliver of opening into remembering those dear people. I agree. It's just like finding finding those moments and bringing them back into the picture, even though they're not physically present anymore. Exactly. So no, it's it's so interesting for you to. To, to hear you and to talk about because I'm trying to sort of understand the, the suffering and the challenges. And as you said, like patience is one of the big ones that if you don't really have it, it's going to be a really more difficult time for you during those initial processes. But to see someone maybe not recognize you or not know your name, I could I could understand like that could be like a, such a, a hard thing to process that like it's almost you're, you remember them, but they don't remember you. And so did you have any moments of like that being challenging for you or them not for you, I guess, for them not knowing your child? Well, she knew um, my son. There are times when she was in a bad mood and we will never know why she was in a bad mood. Could have been she was in pain. It could have been she uh, hadn't slept. Who knows where she'd be very grumpy. And so he would 
maybe be too loud or noisy or whatever. And she would try to grab him in a, in a, in a kind of aggressive way. So we had to be really aware of like, okay, let's get between the two of them here. Because that's another problem with uh, dementia is you're just acting out of impulse. And if you're irritated or frustrated or angry, you'll, you will lash out. So that sort of situation uh, was hard. But I think it's that old adage about being really present. The person might not remember you in that moment, but maybe if you keep talking to them and reminding them in a very calm uh, way, like, oh, I remember when we went to this park and we were sitting in the sunshine, a happy memory. They might not actually remember, but the fact that you're talking to them in a calm, happy way, they'll hear and pick up on those signals right away. So I know it's you want to have that bond. It's basically, if you look behind it, your frustration about not being remembered and not feeling that connection is really about wanting connection. So if you can be in the moment and try to think, okay, maybe not right now, but maybe an hour from now, maybe tomorrow, they might remember, or there might be something about what we've done together that they might remember. And it might be a food. Food is a big one or a smell, like a smell of a flower or a certain beverage or a certain activity or a game, knitting, coloring, and that will help lead them in the neuron pathways to remembering who you are. Or it could be a song that you used to sing together or a particular place. So there's cues that you can try to use uh, that can help. And uh, even if the person doesn't remember you, you remember them. And that person might remember you at another time when you're not there. That's so. very true. And I like what you said of it. It's really about being present in the moments and like those moments are what matter. And even if they don't remember you, it's still your presence and who you are and being with them is making all the difference. And that's just the love. You're providing a space of love. Yeah. And so the less you, less anger, frustration you can exhibit, the better. And if you can say, wow, what a beautiful shirt you're wearing, or wow, look at those those trees and look at that sunshine today and, and just have a pleasant conversation. And if they are open to it, you know, just pat their hand, that kind of thing. Touch is a big thing, as long as they're not suspicious and scared of you. So that's you have to set that stage for them to be comfortable with you first. Wow, those are, I think, good tips and good moments of for me to understand as we move forward and other people as they sort of may have their people that they care about reach dementia at some point in their life. And it's just great to sort of understand that there are people that have brought back some wisdom from those experiences. And you're one of them. Do you know any resources out there? Does the Alzheimer's Society have resources for people that go through this or are starting to go through this? Oh, the Alzheimer's Society of BC and the Alzheimer's Society of Canada have lots of pamphlets and support groups and resources online and physical. There are groups that meet online. There are groups that meet in person for early onset as well as more advanced stage dementia. And community centers often have uh, seniors' activities. There are uh, adult daycare centers. There's a place in Vancouver called Paul's Club where Seniors with dementia can gather and go to a movie together, go for a walk in the park together, have lunch together a couple days a week so that caregivers can have a break. All kinds of different activities and meetings and groups that uh, are available. That's great. This is one of the things people sometimes do is they feel isolated and don't know where to go for help. And it's just nice to know that there is support out there for people who go through these challenging times. Absolutely. But- 
I want to pivot now. I just want to ask you, you had a dream of your father. Yes. Have you ever had a dream of your mother since she has died? I've had dreams where she has sort of been there, but mostly it's through meditation. If I am lucky to have a good deep meditation, sometimes it's a pretty shallow meditation. and All I can do is not think about emails and tasks I need to do. But uh, when I've had a couple of deep sessions, I can sort of visualize her and also through Reiki. Again, you know, some people might think it's really flaky and so forth, that energy healing. But a couple of times, especially the few months after her death, I had some Reiki sessions. I also had Reiki sessions for her in the hospital. I don't know if they helped or not, but I wanted to do something. And I think Reiki is kind of a a way to lead into a kind of meditative state. Uh, There might be other theories about what it does, but it does quiet your mind. And I think it helps you enter your subconscious. And so I I felt her presence there. So I wouldn't say it was visual. It was more of some other kind of perceptual sense that she was present. Yeah. So though, though they're not really dreams. They're more like a, a comfortable, comforting awareness that person exists in some form. Mm, that's very interesting. Have you heard other people who have done Reiki have similar experiences to that? No, I don't know many of my friends. I'm the flaky one who have gone through the Reiki experience. I think Reiki is a very um, individualized thing. So people might have other visions or experiences or feelings. Some people just feel very peaceful and they don't have any visual uh, other perceptual experiences. And I know uh, other people around me have had dreams and and they've been good dreams where they're encountering their mom or their dad in circumstances of uh, in the family home or just doing regular things. And they might see their mom or dad quite a lot younger. And I think those are a gift, a real gift. Me too. I I really believe that there's whatever it is. It's providing comfort and providing a time. And you said, like with your father, you got to see him and it you're able to utilize that as you move forward. It wasn't just for the moment. Even that in itself had its own specialness and maybe healing opportunities for the person or you, yourself. But you carried it forward. Like you kept looking back to those moments and to that moment and those kind of feelings, which is kind of what your book kind of did too, which is it's kind of interesting when you said that because the the child had the dream and then brought that imagery back into the painting that or the coloring that he did of the the rocket on Qingming Day. Yes. And so you sort of see that the child was remembering those moments and was bringing that forward in that moment. And that's the beauty about these dreams where they can be so vivid and memorable that we can do that. And that's why I always love when people have these positive dreams. People do tend to have more of these positive dreams than negative. So I love hearing about it. And it's always so unique to the individual. It's like their own personal, you know, almost like diary or story or art in the mind where like they get to carry that with them, that no two pieces are ever going to be the same. Exactly. Exactly. And so one of our last questions that we'd like to ask that if you could have a dream of someone who has died tonight, what would that dream look like to you? Oh, I would love to have my my mom and, and my dad in particular come back in a dream. And I wish we could be sitting at a table together and having a delicious feast with my son there. 
because uh, my son never got a chance to meet my dad, of course. It'd be great to have my siblings there too. And I wouldn't mind other family members there. My my son's other grandparents that he didn't meet and maybe my husband's uh, father whom I never met because he had passed. It would be great to have a big, big table and a big, big feast with all of them there and that we could be together. Yeah. I like that. So it's like a huge gathering, yeah. feast, potluck or something. Yeah. Is yeah. there a specific food that you say you, it has to be there for this dream to be like the best? Well, our family does a hot pot where it's basically like a fondue with a big bubbling pot of broth and you put in your skewers of meat or fish or whatever a vegetable into to get cooked. But uh, maybe some kind of fondue. It wouldn't have to be the Chinese hot pot. It could be a cheese fondue. But it's such a big table. It'd have to be a pretty big pot of cheese fondue. Um, Maybe a big cake. That would be fun. I love it. Hey, it's a dream. It can be as big as you want. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah. That's great. Well, I hope you have something like that, that kind of a dream tonight. And if you do, please, please let me know. I'd love to hear about it. Thank you so much again for said like writing the book and putting it out there into the world. I think that's just, it helps normalize these experiences that we go through when someone has died. And I like to the focus on children because they can be forgotten sometimes. And you even had a moment where you kind of didn't know if you should have brought your child or not. And he actually wanted to come. And it's like those moments and those experiences can help other people maybe ask prior rather than assuming, right, that you know what the child would want. That's right. I think, I think we should absolutely ask your child, even if the child is three or whatever, you know, and they can say no, right, if they want to. So yeah. I love that. So you said, can't, so you can't buy the book anymore, right? You can, there's a few copies left. You can buy it through, uh, look online on my website. There's a store that sells it and they have a, a few copies left. And I've got, I think, about five copies that I give the store when they ask. But you can find it at all the the libraries in Vancouver, and I'm I'm sure across Canada as well. And it might be in some uh, American uh, locations as well. Beautiful. One one suggestion is you can always make it into a digital book, too, so people can always find it just through searching. So at the end of the day, is there anything else that you want to sort of highlight about where people can find more about you? They can come to the website and I do do writing workshops. I'm doing a writing workshop April 1st at the Museum of Vancouver. I have an online workshop uh, that's available for free at the Vancouver Public Library about writing poems about place. And if I know about place, you could write about the cemetery. You could write about place that you frequented with your uh, loved one who's passed. And there's plenty of wonderful poetry since I'm Vancouver's Poet Laureate, I have to promote poetry. There's plenty of wonderful poetry about grief and loss out there. And I encourage people to find those poems. Do you have one in particular that you sort of hold tight to or no? Um, I think Jack Gilbert, an American poet, is a great poet on loss. He lost a partner and he's written, I think, two or three books about losing his partner. And another former partner of his, Linda Gregg, with two G's at the end of her name, has written a lot. Patrick Lane and Lorna Crozier, two Canadian poets, have written about uh, loss. Lorna Crozier's book of nonfiction writes about loss. Joan Didion, of course, has written about loss of her uh, husband and her daughter. I've written about loss, losses in all my poetry books. And I think 
Yeah, if you looked up loss and poetry, you would find hundreds and hundreds of, of books, whether it's loss of, of our natural world, loss of trees, or loss of uh, a family member. Uh, there, there's just so many poets out there. But I think starting with Lorna Crozier and with Jack Gilbert would be a good start. Well, that's great. Hopefully the, the audience and the listeners will look into that if poetry is something that speaks to them. So once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thank you so much, Joshua.